joined today by Dylan Bernstein. He's an Ashtanga yoga instructor with an aversion to social media. His Instagram account is private, for goodness sake. But I love that about him, and I love his take on yoga and his approach to teaching. He's been practicing for over 17 years now and has such an amazing story to share. And his dedication to the practice is inspiring. Ashtanga yoga is something I love too. I was a yoga instructor for a few years back in 2003. And you'll hear me talk a little bit about my journey with yoga on the episode. If you'd like to find out more about Dylan's classes, you can connect with him through his website and his Instagram account. That's if he will accept your friend request. And both are linked in the show notes. So let's dive in. I want to know, how do you feel post-workshop and post-COVID, actually? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, post-workshop is something I am used to. And as someone who travels and teaches, and I many decades ago had a background in performance, you're kind of always planning the next one and the next one. And you're very dedicated in the moment of being able to teach, let's say, what's happening right here in the room right now, and finishing an event, finishing a workshop, or performance, but in this case a workshop, and you feel successful about how things have gone, it feels great. There's like a, a wave of endorphins, a rush of feeling good. So that feels great. And then post-COVID yeah. is sort of a different experience as well. My COVID, um, as I was sharing with you previously, was was physically pretty light. I still was practicing asana and a little pranayama every okay. day. Yeah, it was okay. Um, but emotionally, it was, was tough. And at first, I thought it was just me. I was just you know, going through an emotional rough patch. But in retrospect, and in speaking with others, I feel like the, the virus somehow had a huge effect on my emotional state and brought me really down. Now, the upside of that is that one day I woke up and thought, it is what it is. Things which, it's easy to say that, right? Yeah. It's easy to say, oh, I should accept everything. Everything's beautiful, fine. But to feel it is something different. So I woke up with one day just sort of in acceptance and then slowly got back the gratitude for being alive. It was deep emotional. Deep, deep. Like, and not, and not, not irrational or irrational even, but like looking at choices I've made in my life and thinking, oh, wow. wow, you know, like here we are. Oh, that's deep and profound. 30 isn't it? years, you know, but look at this. What have you been doing for, you know? Yeah, really going through stuff. But with the, like, you know, some people have rose tinted glasses, but these were sort of the, the rust-tinted glasses, sort of going through, the sifting through all the choices with all this time to think and looking at them and being like, yeah, <laughs> whoops, you know, here we are, that's terrible, yeah, which is yeah. so weird. I do not usually do that. I mean, that's heavy. I've made a lot of weird choices. I've made a lot of very unusual choices in my life. I pay a lot of consequences for the choices I've made. I'm okay with that. Um, and, you know, I make mistakes and I'm okay with that. But I don't usually get into this really mopey kind of, oh, everything's so bad and oh gosh, what have I done? So when did you think it was COVID and maybe just not your, just like, I don't know. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, as I started to feel better. And that's why I, I immediately contacted other people who I knew who had COVID, perhaps in my wake. Um, and... And contacted them and said, look, if you're having, are you having, are you okay emotionally? Because I just went through this really rough patch and now coming out of it, I realized that was probably a lot of the effect of the virus. And everyone who I talked to said, yeah, I'm super bummed out. I've talked with 
fairly happy people who are having suicidal thoughts. And, and so I thought, whoa, that's casting a lifeline out at that moment when we're sick now, it seems really important. We have a tendency to check on people's physical state and say, oh, are you okay? Well, you're not coughing and you're, you're fine then. Oh, you must be fine. Give it a couple of days and you're good, you know? And I think we also need to be checking out on people's emotional state. And really, COVID or not COVID, we've all gone through a collective human trauma here. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't want to get all, you know, it, deeply It has been traumatic for the past couple of years, I think. And because of the way our societies have gone into this idea of polemics about everything, not everything, you know, you're A or you're B, and if you're A, you shouldn't be B. And, you I know. know. It's <laughs> no, crazy. I'm there. I'm sorry. I guess we're there. Yeah. It's interesting, though. Ashtanga is an interesting, an interesting place to prepare for that because yeah. there's so many people who, yoga, I suppose, in general. Well, actually, not many people know. I mean, there are so many different types of yoga. So mm-hmm. can you just give us a little bit what, what makes Ashtanga yoga different from other types of yoga and what made you get into Ashtanga yoga versus the other ones? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a more interesting way to go. Um, well, to answer the second part first, I had been practicing other forms of yoga for about 16 years. I started when I was young, I started when I was 14 years old, um, and, then, and then I found Ashtanga. And so then I was just through my Saturn return, just at, you know, through my 20s and into, and, and into my 30s. And I was really ready for a daily practice. Mm-hmm instead of a little bit when I remembered or here and there. And Ashtanga works really well for that. It's set up to be a daily practice that you can repeat anytime, anywhere, as you know very well. So it's a set series of postures guided on the breaths. Really, it's a set series of breaths that guide you into and out of postures. So in our Ashtanga practice, the the way that you enter a pose and the way that you come out of the pose is just as important maybe more important, but equally important as being in the posture itself. Mm-hmm. So true. it's not like, oh, you do a pose, do Trikonasana, and then do Parshvakonasana, and then do Prasarita Parakonasana. It's that, okay, your inhale takes you exactly to here, and then your exhale takes you exactly to there. Now you're in the pose. So in that way, I mean, you can get, it can get a bit nerdy. You can get pretty obsessive, compulsive about exactly how it's supposed to be. Yeah. So it sort of it beckons in this sort of, let's call them type A people. Which especially with Ashtanga Yoga. Oh, especially Ashtanga. Yeah. Because of this, because there's a set series of vinyasas, a set series of breaths, and an exact posture. It's not, today, I, you know, I feel like doing more backbends, so I'm going to do these, you know, yeah. especially at the beginning. I would say, you know, there's a blueprint, there's a format, and you work with it, and it's working for you, and you try and hew closely to the, the way. And you mature as a practitioner as well, and you start to realize, like, oof, actually, today I'm doing more backbends. Today's my day. And so then you're like, but you know, oh, I'm, I'm a little bit off the blueprint today. Or the way often people learn it, especially with this type A mentality, is that they stay on the exact pattern and go as deep as they can until something hurts and gives out. And then they've got to recover in a way. So then they realize, like, oh, I'd like to do as much as I can without hurting this shoulder, let's say. So then they realize, like, actually, this is a very adaptable, malleable practice. But I don't think, as practitioners or teachers, we don't need to wait for an injury to realize that, you know? Yeah. I mean... So Ashtanga is more led by the breath than actually the postures. I think as so. As opposed to other forms. For me, it is. But, yeah. And like you said, so Ashtanga maybe plays more on the fact that you have to have a more consistent and regular 
and daily practice. You know, I think it works really well for that. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to get all hard. But I agree with you. I mean, for me, somebody, uh, for example, for me as a practitioner, I find that I can get more into Ashtanga Yoga if I'm doing it regularly. It's just something different when you know, like I know tomorrow I'm practicing. Yeah. So, I mean, anything could happen, inshallah. I mean, things could change. I'm okay with that. But when I figure out about dinner plans and things tonight, that's in the equation because I know there's a practice happening tomorrow. Okay, that's a good question because mm. like you're saying, it's true. You have to be so committed to Ashtanga. How does that affect your your social life? I mean, how long have you been doing Ashtanga my Yoga? My social life, my gosh. I'm trying to remember my social life. <laughs> how long have you been doing Ashtanga Yoga for and how long have you been teaching it for? I've been doing Ashtanga Yoga as an everyday practice for, I think I just... Yeah, I guess I passed. It's 2022. I think it's been 17 years of daily ashtanga. So there's 16 years of goofing around. No, wonderful, explorative, you know, free form, more free form (laughs) practices. And then there were 17 years of ashtanga. And again, the first, I don't know, seven years, let's say, I was really more on the blueprint. And then at some point I was like, cool, like, you know, how does the blueprint work if if I did these poses twice? What if I did standing series twice? What happens? You know. So you explored your way through it a little bit. Oh, for sure. I still do. And I mean, then, I, certainly, I think as we age, we're, we're really ex, you know, getting explorative with the practice. Because, I mean, my practice was... Because I guess I'd done some physical practices, and I think what prepared me more is I'd been also doing sitting meditation practices for those 16 years. Mm-hmm. Then when I started to do Ashtanga, I was, I was in some ways prepared. It wasn't the same as if I'd been like you know, um, driving a truck, which is a noble profession, but I, I had been doing other things for those years. So my hips were open, etc. When I could start doing Ashtanga, it, it you know, it, it came rather quickly. Mm-hmm. Not that I was good at it, but it took a while before I really needed to stop and really work on a pose and just be there. So, I mean, with that said, within a number of years, I was looking past primary series and into these other series and blah, blah, blah. So when you started 17 years ago for the daily practice in Ashtanga, what did you have to give up to do? Do you have to give anything up to, to be able to be that committed? Well, that's interesting. I mean, in general, I would say you don't have to give anything up. You know, the, the yoga practice can fit into your life however you want to fit in. And there are people who practice, let's say, Ashtanga once a week. And I, personally, I think it's fine. That's what they want to do. I mean, that's what works for them. That's fine. Um, Personally, I, I, I would encourage people to try to practice regularly, more regularly, you know, like an everyday practice, even if it's only five minutes a day, um, because I think something changes and something shifts and your whole day becomes sort of tainted or imbued with yoga, you know, and you're, you're actually practicing all day long then. Um, but yes, but yes, then as I started to practice more regularly, and I already had a bit of a semi-renunciate lifestyle. I mean, when I was picking up the daily practice, I was living in a monastery anyway. I mean, the, the monks were like, what are you doing in your room for these hours? Like, you know, can't you help us sweep the temple? You really have to do all zasana. But they were also very supportive. Um, but yeah, I mean, eventually, you know, your priorities change. And I don't think it's discipline. I don't think I had to cut anything out that I didn't want to. But my priorities changed enough that, you know, if friends are like, oh, we're going to go to a really late dinner tonight and then go to a show or, you know, go have drinks or something. I mean, I'm like, mm, yeah, I'm going to just catch you guys tomorrow, you know, because yeah. the practice is important to me. And, and, there, and there are times when it's like, oh, but it's Charlie's birthday. And 
tonight's Charlie's, you know, ex 50th birthday, his 25th birthday, we've got to go. So, okay, then I'm in, you know, and okay. then the next day I practice in the afternoon or I catch up on a moon day or something. Again, I, you make it work for you. Yeah, and, you don't uh, feel like you're missing out? No, I don't. I mean, part of it, I had a pretty, pretty late night 20s, you know, and I think a lot of our strongies, you know, yeah. did their, did, saw, saw the sunrise from the other side for a good decade. And then, it's like our part, it's like, like our AA Basically. Totally, totally. Well, it works really well for, for addicts and stuff. I quit drinking and drugs about six months before I started doing an Ashtanga practice daily. So okay. certainly, for me, it really, it came in, in some ways it filled a void. Um, I suppose the sort of the 12-steppers might say, my friends were really wonderful, like basically angels in the recovery community. Look at what I'm doing, though I didn't go through those steps. And they say, ah, but look, you do have a higher power. You do have this amazing sort of discipline and the service and helping others. And they kind of relate it. And I feel honored and uh, to be in, included in that, in that club. Um, and, and we attract the students who we attract. So I usually have an addict coming through my room, no matter where I'm teaching. And I often identify them quickly. And, uh, really? Yeah. So you think that you attract this because of the way you are, your aura basically attracts a certain type of student? Definitely, definitely. And I mean, and, and conversely, I think, you know, I don't try to repel anyone, but I think there's a certain kind of student or, you know, with some bias and they come to me and they really want to do like some big postures and they want to have great photos and blow it up and maybe, you know, get famous from yoga and stuff. And, and to be totally honest with you, I think that's fine. It's not what I'm doing, but I think it's great. I mean, it's really cool. do I think it's awesome. It's not what I'm doing. It's great. So I mentioned earlier that I had a consistent Ishtanga yoga practice back in 2001. And I started teaching yoga in 2003 for a few years. I think 2010 was probably the last time I taught a yoga class. I was obsessed with Ashtanga Yoga. I loved it. I loved the feeling of being connected to my own body. I loved feeling energized after the practice. I felt so zen at the time. When I think back, I sometimes think it was the happiest time in my life. But I became a little disheartened when I felt yoga was becoming very commercial. It was no longer the raw, creative, free-flowing yoga that made me get into it in the first place. I have to admit though, it probably was also a reflection of my state of mind at the time. I wanted something that I could wholeheartedly belong to, and for many reasons, I started to feel disconnected from it. But that's a show for another day. More recently, I've started to slowly get back into the practice, and during Dylan's brief one-week workshop, I looked forward to getting on the mat every morning. So, I'm thinking that 2022 might be a good yoga year for me. I certainly don't think I could be as committed as Dylan. I just don't have that kind of discipline, unfortunately. But listening to his story and feeling the love he has for the practice has inspired me to get back into it. I'm looking forward to easing back into it and this time without any judgment or criticism from me or anyone else for that matter. Well, I, mean, I think your story is so powerful and so important and it, it needs to be shared and unfortunately it's it's common i think you're in the majority of ashtanga practitioners who loved it felt like some magic was happening in yoga and then thought okay i found an official teacher i'm, I'm on the right path and then started to feel bullied and um and at some point a physical injury 
often made people say, whoa, whoa, whoa. But I mean, I think now that we're all becoming very trauma-informed as well, let's look at the emotional damage that was done long before that lower back gave out or long before the wrist or whatever it is, you know? I mean, um, I think it's, it's a travesty that that's how it's passed on. And it seems like as teachers age, they get more sensitive and realize that and then step forward and try to be more humane. Um, but Do you think it's an innate thing for a teacher to be like that? Or is it something that you learn with experience? To be able to know when to kind of step back and let the mm, student find his way in a way I think there through are, the practice. I think there are plenty of teachers who do it from day one. But I think what happens is young teachers feel intimidated and they feel insecure about their experience base and their knowledge base. So instead of just saying, I don't know, let's just see what happens if you try it and feel good. They go to lineage and they go to dogma to, to have the right way to do it. Maybe they check the book or they check with their teacher or something and they say, it has to be this way. Yeah. It, here's the way it has to be. And I mean, that's never been really a big part of, of yoga. I mean, last hundred years, maybe, but you know, thousands of years before that, it was not so much about like, it has to be this way. And as we got more numbers, I think the second part of, of what you said is really interesting there as well, because instead of thinking that the teacher is the one who instills the right dogma into people, that the teacher is a facilitator for yeah. students to find their own way. Now, if the, if the teacher is a facilitator, then it doesn't it doesn't behoove, it doesn't lend itself easily to blowing up a big sort of brand and an ego-based following of saying, I'm Dylan Bernstein, come practice with me, and you won't even know I'm in the room. You know, no one wants to do that. They're, they want, I'm Dylan Bernstein, I have the secret knowledge, you have to do it my way, and it's going to make you the right way or whatever. Yeah. That just sells. So as yoga has become more commercial, as social media has shown us how we naturally operate, I think we're really swimming upstream to say, you know, I want to facilitate your own yoga journey. There's, there's always a movement coming the other way. And I do think as trauma becomes the buzzword of, of this decade, um, the trauma-informed yogis and people uh, offering those ideas are starting to look at that. And I think the Mysore place, the Mysore practice room is like the perfect place for everyone to do what feels right for them. Yeah, because for those of those of uh, those of our listeners listening, those are the people listening to us basically, right. who don't know Mysore Ashtanga. Uh, it's basically you do your own practice at your own pace. So that's why I loved it because, and I still love it actually because that's the point. You're not like I prefer I prefer the Mysore style than lead, for example, because I know that I'm going within my own pace, and especially now that. I'm in my 40s and I don't have, and I don't practice as much as I used to. So I know when that downward dog, if after four breaths, I really feel a strain, I, I just like back off and I just like go back, yeah. you know? So so that way I feel like the practice, I, I'm, I'm, I own my practice and I'm, and I'm in my body and, and I come out feeling more present for some reason. I don't know. It's like I'm in my body. I know exactly where I was going. I know how I felt during in each posture and I just know that now is not the time to push myself and I know sometimes I can push myself and there are other times where I feel like you know I just want to 
back off a bit. Absolutely. It's so cool to hear you say now you, you own your practice. I mean, isn't that really what it's about? This autonomy of, of owning your own well-being, mm-hmm. of owning your own choices, of owning your time. You know, I mean, ideally of owning, you know, your breath, your heart rate, your emotional state. I yeah. mean, that, that's a lot of autonomy to put on anyone. But, I mean, it, it ties back to, I really was reminded of what you'd asked before. Did I have to give anything up? Yeah. Now, if I'm living, let's say, a material life, um, I mean, in some ways I am, but if I'm living a life that's based in materialism and I have to look a certain way and show up at certain events and say the right things and do the right things, and if someone says, tonight we're going for late drinks and we're going to be out till two for a client dinner or something, and I have to say, yes, 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 I can't wait, you know, that's a very, that's going to be an impediment, an obstacle to yoga. It's going to make it very hard, difficult. I don't own my time in the morning. I don't own the, what's going on in my body, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I want to say, if I am an Ashtangi, if I decide I'm going to be an Ashtangi, I will wear what the Ashtangis wear, I will eat what the Ashtangis eat, I will say what the Ashtangis say, I will go to sleep at the right time, I will wake up at the right time, I will do my practice as Ashtangis do, I still don't own my practice. I still don't have autonomy. I'm just in a different conformist box trying to seek identity within group, which is very human and it's very okay but i think that you know the yoga practice does lead us to have a little bit of empowerment and be like no sorry babe i'm gonna skip dinner tonight because you know i want to go practice with this person tomorrow or hey sorry dylan i'm not coming to class tomorrow morning because it's charlie's 50th birthday so, and i want to stay out late <laughs> and i want to stay out late and guess who decides you yep. know <laughs> um and i think you know again i I don't have a lot of huge other commitments in life and the way things have worked out. I've been able to keep a daily practice going for 17 years. But when I say that, it's not that I'm trying to push through some huge amount of asana in the morning. I get on the mat and I see what happens. And if it's a day when, oh, this, these poses are available to me today, I practice them. If it's a day when I'm like, oof, I don't want to do any of that stuff. Okay, yeah, actually, oh, that, sure. can I, so as an instructor and having over... 16 years, so 17 years uh, yoga practice regularly. So do you have those off days? Oh, yeah. Off days meaning days when it doesn't feel right. Yeah, where or you're like, oh, my like, God. I'm not going to do this. Or either or. Like some days where you're like, you know what? Screw yeah. it. I don't want to do <laughs> I don't want to practice today. Or like, advanced. oh, I'm going to practice, but yeah. this doesn't feel good at all, this posture. I'm going to not yeah. do this. I'm like more on the... Okay, I'm more on the side of like, mm, this doesn't feel great. This posture doesn't feel great. I'm going to modify it. Okay, I'm going to do, I'm looking for what feels good. I'm looking for yeah. like the rasa, the flavor, the juice of, of what feels good. I'm not at the level yet, the advanced level yet, to be like, nah, screw it, I'm just not practicing. I mean, if something's going on, I'm like, oh, if I'm feverish, okay, then I'm like, okay, that's not a required day to practice. Um, if it's a full moon or new moon or once a week, I take a day, Saturday or Sunday or something off, fine. And then maybe if I have a really early flight, like Tuesday morning, then I'll be like, okay, I'll practice Saturday and Sunday, and then Tuesday is my off day for this week. Okay. So I personally do a bit of horse trading or something. Yeah. Um, but again, that practice is I get on the mat, I show up, and I see what happens. Okay. Um, and it lasts for a while. I mean, it's not like I get up on the mat and I show up and I'm like, what happens is I'd like to have some chocolate and look at my phone. No. <laughs> yeah. So how, what do you think that means, though? Let's say today you wake up, and you do your practice. Okay. And you're in your back bend. I'm going to ask you specifically about the back bend sure. because it's my like weak point. But 
do you think if you're not, or like a student or you, that you feel like you're not feeling the backbend, do you think it is an, it is basically a manifestation of some kind of mental, um, something that you're going through emotionally? Or is it just, or does it just happen as an off day? Because I know, let's say backbends, they always say backbends are a way of opening up your heart, heart chakra. And so sometimes I feel like because that is my weak point, I know that I have a, heart, a problem opening up my heart oh, chakra. So I have this, um, I have this weakness of, I don't necessarily like to show my vulnerabilities, right. maybe because I've been like, you know, probably shamed for them when I was younger or something for whatever reason. But so I definitely, that's one of the things I don't like to open up very much about like my emotions. So I feel like that could be a little bit related and partly because of the lack of like consistent practice. But how about you as somebody who practices often? And do you see sometimes your students, do you think that that sometimes, do you, are you the type of person like, okay, that could be like that person has maybe a mental block on this for, for on this posture or do you think no it's just it's just a physical thing well gosh i mean oof. well i would like to say that i share with you a history of lacking vulnerability or avoiding vulnerability avoiding it, yeah. and it shows up a lot in my physical posture as well with those first 16 years i was practicing were basically without backbends um so i was doing other postures so then when I came to Ashtanga, I could sort of, you know, quickly, I could get through a primary. Lotus was not a problem and twists and hamstrings and stuff within, you know, a couple of weeks, really. Um, but I couldn't get off the ground in Urvadhanarasana. I couldn't do a backbend. Um, and I think that was actually quite helpful to open up uh, on, on the psycho-emotional level. Yeah. And I don't think that they're separate. So I think the physical body and the psychological state and the emotional state, they're all tied together. Yeah. And I do think we can work a lot. Now, as a teacher, when I look around the room, I'm looking at pattern, really. Okay. I mean, there are times where, like, you know, I taught in Cairo two years ago. I come, I go leave. I come back to Cairo. After two years, I might see a student. I might not remember her name. I might not have remembered her when we had a cup of tea just a minute ago. But when I see her son salutation A, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, really? Yeah, she's the hustler. She's the, the, the one who's slow or, you know, like, I see it. And there's a lot of judgment. Um, I try not to be judgmental in, in terms of better or worse, but there is some interpretation of myself, you know, where I'm looking at a student thinking, okay, why is she doing that? Why is the back bend really challenging to her? Is it her shoulders? Is it her hips? Is it a psychological thing? There's so many times, so many times, a big part of what I do is I look at students and I know the body in Ashtanga pretty well at this point, and I realize that student is fully able, physically able to do that pose, and they're not doing it. Yeah. Why? Now, they might be injured. That's always my first okay. check. Um, but oftentimes you can kind of guess or see that as well. And there's a lot of little postures where I feel like it's fear. There's a lot of little places in primary where I see fear gets people to slide away from doing it exactly the way they're supposed to do it. Now, if they don't want to do it that way, fine, I don't care. That's great, they don't have to do it, you know? But I feel like a lot of people just feel that they can't do it or the fear governs them. So then I go in and work with that. Okay. And, you know, I think as teachers of yoga, we really have to accept we're not just working with people's physical bodies. We are really in their fragile eggshell 
ego, psycho, emotional state. So if I'm, and I've been guilty of it and running a really busy program in Hong Kong and coming in and trying to drop back enough people and they don't wait, you know, so long and be like, hey, I told you to do that like this, you do it like that. You know, hey, you, why, why'd you skip that post? Um, and then I'm like bullying people, you know? And I'm that, then I become that bully. And for me, off, oh, you know, whatever, I had a bad day, okay, let me just go home and have a granola and forget about it. But for the student, oh my gosh, you know, I've made some huge dent. I have no idea if I haven't taken the time to look, how is that student doing? How are they okay? You know, we could have really, really done some psychological damage to people. And so, I mean, I try to work from the other perspective where I'm like, hey, that's cool. You know, like, that's really cool that you're here on the mat um, and give people that support and empowerment. And at the same time, while being supportive and empowering, I'll come in and say, you know, I notice you're dodging the jump back after Bujapidasana. And I think you can do it. I think physically you can do it. Why are you dodging that? And so I enter into conversation with students at times. It can be distracting, so I don't do it all the time. Do you generally get a good feedback from them? Do you gener- do you like does a light bulb go off and say, "Oh yeah, maybe I'm just kind of a little bit blocked in that in that posture or It's definitely not always. I'll tell you that. I mean, sometimes there's an intellectualization that then they're like, oh, well, actually, um, you know, my cat, when I was seven, my cat got run over by a car. And so blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, yes, that's super valid. And let's go back to bougie pedasana. Like, so are we going to work on that now? Maybe we can heal that? Or is that just a dodge? Which is okay, too. There's a student, you know, I travel. And so I, I see there's a student who I've seen, I've seen her probably once or twice a year, for the last seven, eight, maybe 10 years. I mean, I remember when she first started doing yoga. I remember when she did her teacher training. I remember when she started teaching. Now she's starting to teach Mysore. Um, and there's a pose, Bakasana, one of these jump backs. Bakasana B, actually, the tricky one. And, you know, I've tried this, I've tried that. Dijle, talking to you, shout out. Um, and I've said, you know, I think you could do it. Yeah, let's try it. No, come on, let me hold your hips and I'll get you. And then this time I just went through and I just... I mean, we really just sat down and she was like, no, I'm trying. I'm like, I know, but I don't want you to try and do it. You know, you've been trying to do it. And to tell you the truth, it's not working, you know, which is a horrible thing to hear yeah. you know, in the wrong context. Um, and I'm like, you know, I think the trying, I think we got to scrap it. And, and it's scary when you come forward. She's like, yeah, it's scary. But, you know, I, I, I'm trying to be OK with that. I'm like, yeah, you know, again, this trying to be OK. And I'm like, DJ, I know you well. I could, I'm looking at your practice. You're super strong. I know you can do this. I absolutely believe in you. I believe that you're physically able to do this posture. The only limitation is that you're, you're afraid. And so you're letting the fear just almost get you there and then win. And I think instead of trying to do it, you just need to do it. For me, that's why maybe I asked you the question about picking your teacher, because I think for me, it's very important to have a teacher that, that believes in you, because then you'll feel like you're you're basically good enough. And I think that's totally. the innate feeling that everybody wants to feel like they're good enough to do something. Totally. No matter what age. I mean, that's I felt right. that when I was in my teens. I felt that in my 20s, 30s, and now in my 40s. It's like one phrase, but you need that. It's like a small pep talk. It is. The, it the is. quickest pep talk ever. Totally. You could do it. You got this. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know, that is outside of the tradition and certainly outside of the tradition of Ashtanga. And to validate it, 
it's very difficult to point at what is absolutely true in a, you know, in a metaphysical sense. And so there's this ancient technique of logic in, in, in Nyaya, old school Indian philo philosophical systems, neti neti, to say, it's not this, it's not that. Like, it, who am I? Well, you're not the body, and you're not your thoughts, and you're not your emotions. Yeah, but who am I? Okay, but difficult to say you are this, you are soul or something. Well, what is that? How do we point to that? But we can say what you're not. So this idea of saying it's not this, it's not that, is really an antiquated and valued treasure of Indian philosophy. And it carries through, I think, in the Mysore room. And that's why we evolved this bully mentality, where we had teachers who said, no, 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 no. You know, your trikonasana, your step's too long. And then you make it really short. And they're like, what are you doing? No, it's too short. And then you're like, God, why don't you just tell me how long it's supposed to be? And then you do it in the middle and they just walk by, hmm. And you hope that that meant that's that's good good enough right? <laughs> yeah. good enough. Now, I mean that is a you know that, that psychological experience is fraught with doubt and peril and judgment and validation issues. But but um, it, it makes sense that if I look at a student's step in trikonasana, I can see whoa that's too long. And if I then I look at it, it's too short. Fine, that's too long. That's too short. And then they try it like this. That looks okay to me. And that's different than saying, let me get out the measuring tape and your step should be 68 centimeters. No, I'm saying not that one's too long. That one's too short. But you still have all that room in the middle to find your own way. What do you think is, how, what would you recommend to somebody who doesn't know anything about yoga and wants to get into yoga? What is your, like, you know, simple recommendation? Find a good teacher. Okay. And how do you do that? You ask someone who's practicing. And you hopefully, yeah, I mean, you all, we all have friends who are practicing. And, you know, they might send you to a teacher they think's good, and you might not vibe with that person. Okay, then you keep looking. But you find a teacher who's good enough, basically, you know. <laughs> and good enough's good enough. It's a great place to be. I just recommend that nobody goes, finds a bully. If it's a bully, move on. Totally. totally. <laughs> and... How about like practice long, short term and long term for like to, to have a sustainable practice? Is it okay to have an Ashtanga yoga practice that is a couple of times a week? Yes, definitely. You think so? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a different practice yeah. than getting on the mat every day. Mm -hmm. But I think the key, the secret, what, what I want people to know, the secret to getting on the mat every day is that getting on the mat is enough. So maybe, you know, you have a busy morning, you put out the mat the night before and you get up five minutes earlier, but you kind of waste that time, and you just get on the mat, and you just do one sun salutation, then you gotta go. That's good. That's a day, that's a check you got on the mat, because that's gonna build. Getting on the mat every day is gonna build, and you are gonna be gravitating towards the benefits of yoga. Okay. Um, guilt is not a great motivator. I, I read this thing, I, I listened to this podcast, and this guy, I think James Clear, who wrote the book Atomic Habits, and he said, he had his one client he was coaching and he said, I told him that he needed to cultivate a habit and that was the most important to lose weight. So what he had to do, he had to get his running shoes on, his, his sneakers on. He had to walk to the gym, not do anything and just walk back. Awesome. He did that. And for, not do anything. Not do anything. He, he didn't said, have the option I to. Yeah, no, he's, yeah, he cool. said that way he cultivated that, that culture of just going to the gym. Right. He's like, after 60 days, I think it was 60 days Ooh. of doing that. And then he's like, then he was ready, then he was doing 15 minutes. 
So then he had that just like, it was just automatic. He put on his running shoes, go. And so that makes, like, like you said about the yoga, it's important, like, even if you feel like I have to do 30 minutes. No, if you just want to do four sun salutations, Surya Namaskara A, for example, yeah. that's good enough and don't Definitely. feel that guilt and like... And try not to feel that guilt. Yeah. And if you feel the guilt, it's okay, it's natural, we're human, but don't get caught up in it. And I think the, a problem with the two-time-a-week practitioner is they go in and they try and do it super hard because this is their one day a week and so they crush themselves into that and they leave and, oh, I'm destroyed after yoga, I'm so tired, tomorrow I'm going to sleep in or, you know... And that's not sustainable to yeah. me. You know, I'd much rather have you do twice a week practice these four sun salutations and feel good. Yeah. Because then you're going to do it more. It's like your true. friend going to the gym. I love it. Yeah. I go to the gym. I go to the gym every day. How much time do you spend there? Oh, I don't go in. I, don't go, I didn't do anything. I just <laughs> go to the gym. And exactly. Then turn around. That's awesome. I go to Mysore every day. Yeah. I just say hello and I leave. <laughs> that's awesome. But yeah, so I wanted to just thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks. I'm and sorry I, I really had a great conversation. It was a lot of fun. Yeah.